0: Section 24 of The Letters of Mark Twain, Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain, Complete, by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 22. Letters, 1882. Mainly to Howells. WASTED FURY, OLD SCENES REVISITED THE MISSISSIPPI BOOK A man of Mark Twain's profession and prominence must necessarily be the subject of much newspaper comment. Jest, compliment, criticism, none of these things disturbed him, as a rule. He was pleased that his books should receive favorable notices by men whose opinion he respected. But he was not grieved by adverse expressions jests at his expense if well written usually amused him cheap jokes only made him sad but sarcasms and innuendos were likely to enrage him particularly if he believed them prompted by malice perhaps among all the letters he ever wrote there is none more characteristic than this confession of violence and eagerness for reprisal followed by his acknowledgment of error and a manifest appreciation of his own weakness. It should be said that Mark Twain and Whitelaw Reed were generally very good friends, and, perhaps for the moment, this fact seemed to magnify the offense. To W. D. Howells, in Boston. Hartford, January 28, 82. My dear Howells, nobody knows better than I that there are times when swearing cannot meet the emergency. How sharply I feel that at this moment. Not a single profane word has issued from my lips this morning. I have not even had the impulse to swear, so wholly ineffectual would swearing have manifestly been in the circumstances. But I will tell you about it. About three weeks ago, A sensitive friend, approaching his revelation cautiously, intimated that the New York Tribune was engaged in a kind of crusade against me. This seemed a higher compliment than I deserved, but no matter, it made me very angry. I asked many questions, and gathered in substance this. Since Reed's return from Europe, the Tribune had been flinging sneers and brutalities at me with such persistent frequency as to attract general remark. I was an angered, which is just as good an expression, I take it, as an hungered. Next, I learned that Osgood, among the rest of the general, was worrying over these constant and pitiless attacks. Next came the testimony of another friend, that the attacks were not merely frequent, but almost daily. Reflect upon that almost daily insults, for two months on a stretch. What would you have done? As for me, I did the thing which was the natural thing for me to do. That is, I set about contriving a plan to accomplish one or the other of two things. One, force a peace, or two, get revenge. When I got my plan finished, it pleased me marvelously. It was in six or seven sections, each section to be used in its turn and by itself, the assault to begin at once with number 1, and the rest to follow, one after the other, to keep the communication open while I wrote my biography of Reed. I meant to wind up with this latter great work, and then dismiss the subject for good. Well, ever since then I have worked day and night making notes and collecting and classifying material. I'VE GOT COLLECTORS AT WORK IN ENGLAND. I WENT TO NEW YORK AND SAT THREE HOURS TAKING EVIDENCE WHILE A STENOGRAPHER SET IT DOWN. AS MY LABORS GREW, SO ALSO GREW MY FASCINATION. MALICE AND MALIGNITY FADED OUT OF ME, OR MAYBE I DROVE THEM OUT OF ME, KNOWING THAT A MALIGNANT BOOK WOULD HURT NOBODY BUT THE FOOL WHO WROTE IT. I GOT THOROUGHLY IN LOVE WITH THIS WORK. I saw that I was going to write a book which the very devils and angels themselves would delight to read, and which would draw disapproval from nobody but the hero of it, and Mrs. Clemens, who was bitter against the whole thing. One part of my plan was so delicious that I had to try my hand on it right away, just for the luxury of it. I set about it, and sure enough it panned out to admiration i wrote that chapter most carefully and i couldn't find a fault with it it was not for the biography no it belonged to an immediate and deadlier project well five days ago this thought came into my mind from mrs clemens's wouldn't it be well to make sure that the attacks have been almost daily and to also make sure that their number and character will justify me in doing what i am proposing to do i at once set a man to work in new york to seek out and copy every unpleasant reference which had been made to me in the tribune from november 1st to date on my own part i began to watch the current numbers for i had subscribed for the paper the result arrived from my new york man this morning oh what a pitiable wreck of high hopes the almost daily assaults for two months consist of one adverse criticism of the prince and the pauper from an enraged idiot in the london athenaeum two paragraph from some indignant englishman in the pall mall gazette who pays me the vast compliment of gravely rebuking some imaginary ass who has set me up in the neighbourhood of Rebelay. 3. A remark of the Tribune's about the Montreal dinner, touched with an almost invisible satire. 4. A remark of the Tribune's about refusal of Canadian copyright, not complimentary, but not necessarily malicious, and, of course, adverse criticism which is not malicious, is a thing which none but fools irritate themselves about. There, That is the prodigious bugaboo in its entirety. Can you conceive of a man's getting himself into a sweat over so diminutive a provocation? I am sure I can't. What the devil can those friends of mine have been thinking about to spread these three or four harmless things out into two months of daily sneers and affronts? The whole offense, boiled down, amounts to just this one uncourteous remark of the tribune about my book not me between november one and december twenty and a couple of foreign criticisms of my writings not me between november one and january twenty six if i can't stand that amount of friction i certainly need reconstruction further boiled down this vast outpouring of malice amounts to simply this One jest from the Tribune. One can make nothing more serious than that out of it. One jest, and that is all, for the foreign criticisms do not count, they being matters of news and proper for publication in anybody's newspaper. And to offset that one jest, the Tribune paid me one compliment December 23 by publishing my note declining the New York-New England dinner while merely in the same breath mentioning that similar letters were read from general sherman and other men whom we all know to be persons of real consequence well my mountain has brought forth its mouse and a sufficiently small mouse it is god knows and my three weeks hard work have got to go into the ignominious pigeonhole it! i could have earned ten thousand dollars with infinitely less trouble however i shouldn't have done it for i am too lazy now in my sear and yellow leaf to be willing to work for anything but love i kind of envy you people who are permitted for your righteousness's sake to dwell in a boarding-house not that i should always want to live in one but i should like the change occasionally from this housekeeping slavery to that wild independence a life of don't care a damn in a boarding-house is what i have asked for in many a secret prayer i shall come by and by and require of you what you have offered me there yours ever mark howells who had already known something of the gathering storm replied your letter was an immense relief to me FOR ALTHOUGH I HAD AN ABIDING FAITH THAT YOU WOULD GET SICK OF YOUR ENTERPRISE, I WASN'T EASY UNTIL I KNEW THAT YOU HAD GIVEN IT UP. JOEL CHANDLER HARRIS APPEARS AGAIN IN THE LETTERS OF THIS PERIOD. TWITCHELL, DURING A TRIP SOUTH ABOUT THIS TIME, HAD CALLED ON HARRIS WITH SOME SORT OF PROPOSITION OR SUGGESTION FROM CLEMENS THAT HARRIS APPEAR WITH HIM IN PUBLIC, AND TELL, OR READ, THE REMUS STORIES FROM THE PLATFORM but harris was abnormally diffident clemens later pronounced him the shyest full-grown man he had ever met and the word which twichell brought home evidently did not encourage the platform idea to joel chandler harris in atlanta hartford april two eighty two private my dear mr harris joe twichell brought me your note and told me of his talk with you said you didn't believe you would ever be able to muster a sufficiency of reckless daring to make you comfortable and at ease before an audience well i have thought out a device whereby i believe we can get around that difficulty i will explain when i see you joe says you want to go to canada within a month or six weeks i forget just exactly what he did say but he intimated the trip could be delayed a while, if necessary. If this is so, suppose you meet Osgood and me in New Orleans early in May, say somewhere between the first and sixth. It will be well worth your while to do this, because the author who goes to Canada unposted will not know what course to pursue to secure copyright when he gets there. He will find himself in a hopeless confusion as to what is the correct thing to do now osgood is the only man in america who can lay out your course for you and tell you exactly what to do therefore you just come to new orleans and have a talk with him our idea is to strike across lots and reach st louis the twentieth of april thence we propose to drift southward stopping at some town a few hours or a night every day and making notes to escape the interviewers i shall follow my usual course and use a fictitious name c l samuel of new york i don't know what osgood's name will be but he can't use his own if you see your way to meet us in new orleans drop me a line now and as we approach that city i will telegraph you what day we shall arrive there i would go to atlanta if i could but shan't be able we shall go back up the river to st paul and thence by rail X lots home i am making this letter so dreadfully private and confidential because my movements must be kept secret else i shan't be able to pick up the kind of book material i want if you are diffident i suspect that you ought to let osgood be your magazine agent he makes those people pay three or four times as much as an article is worth whereas i never had the cheek to make them pay more than double yours sincerely s l clemens my backwardness is an affliction wrote harris the ordeal of appearing on the stage would be a terrible one but my experience is that when a diffident man does become familiar with his surroundings he has more impudence than his neighbors EXTREMES MEET. He was sorely tempted, but his courage became as water at the thought of footlights and assembled listeners. Once in New York he appears to have been caught unawares at a tile-club dinner and made to tell a story, but his agony was such that at the prospect of a similar ordeal in Boston he avoided that city and headed straight for Georgia in safety the new orleans excursion with osgood as planned by clemens proved a great success the little party took the steamer gold dust from st louis down river toward new orleans clemens was quickly recognized of course and his assumed name laid aside the author of uncle remus made the trip to new orleans george w cable was there at the time and we may believe that in the company of mark twain and osgood those southern authors passed two or three delightful days. Clemens also met his old teacher Bixby in New Orleans, and came back up the river with him, spending most of his time in the pilot-house as in the old days. It was a glorious trip, and reaching St. Louis he continued it northward, stopping off at Hannibal and Quincy. To Mrs. Clemens in Hartford, Quincy, Illinois, May 17, 82. Livy, darling, I am desperately homesick, but I promised Osgood and must stick it out. Otherwise, I would take the train at once and break for home. I have spent three delightful days in Hannibal, loitering around all day long, examining the old localities and talking with the greyheads who were boys and girls with me thirty or forty years ago. It has been a moving time. I spent my nights with john and helen Garth three miles from town in their spacious and beautiful house they were children with me and afterwards schoolmates now they have a daughter nineteen or twenty years old spent an hour yesterday with a w lamb who was not married when i saw him last he married a young lady whom i knew and now i have been talking with their grown-up sons and daughters lieutenant hickman the spruce young handsomely uniformed volunteer of eighteen forty six called on me a grisly elephantine patriarch of sixty five now his grace all vanished that world which i knew in its blossoming youth is old and bowed and melancholy now its soft cheeks are leathery and wrinkled the fire is gone out in its eyes and the spring from its step it will be dust and ashes when i come again i have been clasping hands with the moribund and usually they said it is for the last time now i am under way again upon this hideous trip to st paul with a heart brimming full of thoughts and images of you and susie and bay and the peerless Jean. and so good night my love Samuel. clemens's trip had been saddened by learning in new orleans the news of the death of dr john brown of edinburgh to dr brown's son whom he had known as jock he wrote immediately on his return to hartford to mr john brown in edinburgh hartford june one eighteen eighty two my dear mr brown I was three thousand miles from home at breakfast in New Orleans when the damp morning paper revealed the sorrowful news among the cable dispatches. There was no place in America, however remote or however rich or poor or high or humble, where words of mourning for your father were not uttered that morning, for his works had made him known and loved all over the land to mrs clemens and me the loss is personal and our grief the grief one feels for one who was peculiarly near and dear mrs clemens has never ceased to express regret that we came away from england the last time without going to see him and often we have since projected a voyage across the atlantic for the sole purpose of taking him by the hand and looking into his kind eyes once more before he should be called to his rest we both thank you greatly for the edinburgh papers which you sent my wife and i join in affectionate remembrances and greetings to yourself and your aunt and in the sincere tender of our sympathies faithfully yours s l clemens our susie is still megalops he gave her that name can you spare a photograph of your father we have none but the one taken in a group with ourselves." William Dean Howells, at the age of forty-five, reached what many still regard his highest point of achievement in American realism. His novel, The Rise of Silas Lapham, which was running as a century serial during the summer of 1882, attracted wide attention, and upon its issue in book form took first place among his published novels. Mark Twain, to the end of his life, loved all that Howells wrote. Once, long afterward, he said, "'Most authors give us glimpses of a radiant moon, but Howells' moon shines and sails all night long.' When the installments of the rise of Silas Lapham began to appear, he overflowed in adjectives, the sincerity of which we need not doubt, in view of his quite open criticisms of the author's reading delivery to w d howells in belmont massachusetts my dear howells i am in a state of wild enthusiasm over this july installment of your story it's perfectly dazzling it's masterly incomparable yet i heard you read it without losing my balance well the difference between your reading and your writing is remarkable i mean in the effects produced and the impression left behind why the one is to the other as is one of joe twitcher's yarns repeated by a somnambulist goodness gracious you read me a chapter and it is a gentle pearly dawn with a sprinkle of faint stars in it but by and by i strike it in print and shout to myself god bless us how has that pallid former spectacle been turned into these gorgeous sunset splendors well i don't care how much you read your truck to me you can't permanently damage it for me that way it is always perfectly fresh and dazzling when i come on it in the magazine of course i recognize the form of it as being familiar but that is all that is i remember it as pyrotechnic figures which you set up before me dead and cold but ready for the match and now I see them touched off and all ablaze with blinding fires you can read if you want to but you don't read worth a damn I know you can read because your readings of cable and your repeatings of the German doctor's remarks prove that that's the best drunk scene because the truest that i ever read there are touches in it that i never saw any writer take note of before and they are set before the reader with amazing accuracy how very drunk and how recently drunk and how altogether admirably drunk you must have been to enable you to contrive that masterpiece why i didn't notice that that religious interview between Marcia and mrs Halleck was so deliciously humorous when you read it to me but dear me it's just too lovely for anything wrote clark to collar it for the library hang it i know where the mystery is now when you are reading you glide right along and i don't get a chance to let the thing soak home but when i catch it in the magazine i give a page twenty or thirty minutes in which to gently and thoroughly filter into me Your humor is so very subtle and elusive. Well, often it's just a vanishing breath of perfume which a body isn't certain he smelt till he stops and takes another smell. Whereas you can smell other—' Remainder obliterated. Among Mark Twain's old schoolmates in Hannibal was little Helen Kercheval, for whom in those early days he had a very tender spot indeed but she married another schoolmate john garth who in time became a banker highly respected and a great influence john and helen garth have already been mentioned in the letter of may seventeenth to john garth in hannibal hartford july three eighty two dear john Your letter of June nineteenth arrived just one day after we ought to have been in Elmira, New York for the summer. But at the last moment, the baby was seized with scarlet fever. I had to telegraph and countermand the order for a special sleeping car. And in fact, we all had to fly around in a lively way and undo the patient preparations of weeks, rehabilitate the dismantled house, unpack the trunks, and so on. A couple of days later, the eldest child was taken down with so fierce a fever that she was soon delirious—not scarlet fever, however. Next I myself was stretched on the bed with three diseases at once, and all of them fatal. But I never did care for fatal diseases if I could only have privacy and room to express myself concerning them. We gave early warning. And, of course, nobody has entered the house in all this time but one or two reckless old bachelors, and they probably wanted to carry the disease to the children of former flames of theirs. The house is still in quarantine and must remain so for a week or two yet, at which time we are hoping to leave for Elmira. Always your friend, S. L. Clemens By the end of summer, Howells was in Europe, and clemens in elmira was trying to finish his mississippi book which was giving him a great deal of trouble it was usually so with his non-fiction books his interest in them was not cumulative he was prone to grow weary of them while the menace of his publisher's contract was maddening howell's letters meant to be comforting or at least entertaining did not always contribute to his peace of mind the library of american humor which they had planned was an added burden. Before sailing, Howells had written, Do you suppose you can do your share of the reading at Elmira, while you are writing at the Mississippi Book? In a letter from London, Howells writes of the good times he is having over there with Osgood, Hutton, John Hay, Aldrich, and Alma Tadema, excursioning to Oxford, feasting especially at the Mitre Tavern where they let you choose your dinner from the joints hanging from the rafter, and have passages that you lose yourself in every time you try to go to your room. Couldn't you and Mrs. Clemens step over for a little while? We have seen lots of nice people, and have been most pleasantly made of. But I would rather have you smoke in my face and talk for half a day, just for pleasure, than to go to the best house or club in London.' The reader will gather that this could not be entirely soothing to a man shackled by a contract and a book that refused to come to an end. To W. D. Howells, in London, Hartford, Connecticut, October 30, 1882 My dear Howells, I do not expect to find you, so I shan't spend many words on you to wind up in the perdition of some European dead-letter office. I only just want to say that the closing installments of the story are prodigious. All along I was afraid it would be impossible for you to keep up so splendidly to the end, but you were only, I see now, striking eleven. It is in these last chapters that you struck twelve. Go on and write. You can write good books yet, but you can never match this one. And speaking of the book, I enclose something which has been happening here lately. We have only just arrived at home, and I have not seen Clark on all matters. I cannot see him or anyone else until I get my book finished. The weather turned cold, and we had to rush home while I still lacked 30,000 words. I had been sick and got delayed. I am going to write all day and two-thirds of the night until the thing is done or break down at it the spur and the burden of the contract are intolerable to me i can endure the irritation of it no longer i went to work at nine o'clock yesterday morning and went to bed an hour after midnight result of the day mainly stolen from books though credit given ninety five hundred words so I reduced my burden by one-third in one day. It was five days' work in one. I have nothing more to borrow or steal. The rest must all be written. It is ten days' work, and unless something breaks, it will be finished in five. We all send love to you and Mrs. Howells and all the family. Yours ever, Mark. Again, from Villeneuve, on Lake Geneva, Howells wrote urging him this time to spend the winter with them in Florence, where they would write their great American comedy of Orme's Motor. "'Which is to enrich us beyond the dreams of avarice. We could have a lot of fun writing it, and you could go home with some of the good old Etruscan malaria in your bones, instead of the wretched Pinchbeck Hartford article that you are suffering from now. It's a great opportunity for you.' besides nobody over there likes you half as well as i do it should be added that ormes motor was the provisional title that clemens and howells had selected for their comedy which was to be built in some measure at least around the character or rather from the peculiarities of orion clemens the cable mentioned in mark twain's reply is of course george w cable who only a little while before had come up from New Orleans to conquer the North with his wonderful tales and readings. To W. D. Howells in Switzerland Hartford, November 4th, 1882 My dear Howells, Yes, it would be profitable for me to do that, because with your society to help me, I should swiftly finish this now apparently interminable book but i cannot come because i'm not boss here and nothing but dynamite can move mrs clemens away from home in the winter season i never had such a fight over a book in my life before and the foolishest part of the whole business is that i started osgood to editing it before i had finished writing it as a consequence large errors of it are condemned here and there and yonder and I have the burden of these unfilled gaps harassing me and the thought of the broken continuity of the work, while I am at the same time trying to build the last quarter of the book. However, at last I have said with sufficient positiveness that I will finish the book at no particular date, that I will not hurry it, that I will not hurry myself, that I will take things easy and comfortably, write when I choose to write leave it alone when i so prefer the printers must wait the artists the canvases and all the rest i have got everything at a dead standstill and that is where it ought to be and that is where it must remain to follow any other policy would be to make the book worse than it already is i ought to have finished it before showing to anybody and then sent it across the ocean to you to be edited as usual for you seem to be a great many shades happier than you deserve to be and if i had thought of this thing earlier i would have acted upon it and taken the tuck somewhat out of your joyousness in the same mail with your letter arrived the enclosed from orm the motor man you will observe that he has an office I will explain that this is a law office, and I think it probably does him as much good to have a law office without anything to do in it, as it would another man to have one with an active business attached. You see, he is on the electric light late now—going to light the city and allow me to take all the stock if I want to—and he will manage it free of charge. It never would occur to this simple soul how much less costly it will be to me to hire him on a good salary not to manage it do you observe the same old eagerness the same old hurry springing from the fear that if he does not move with the utmost swiftness that colossal opportunity will escape him now just fancy this same frantic plunging after vast opportunities going on week after week with this same man during fifty entire years and he has not yet learned in the slightest degree that there isn't any occasion to hurry that his vast opportunity will always wait and that whether it waits or flies he certainly will never catch it this immortal hopefulness fortified by its immortal and unteachable misjudgment is the immortal feature of this character for a play and we will write that play we should be fools else That staccato postscript reads as if some new and mighty business were imminent, for it is slung on the paper telegraphically, all the small words left out. I am afraid something newer and bigger than the electric light is swinging across his orbit. Save this letter for an inspiration. I have got a hundred more. Cable has been here, creating worshippers on all hands. He is a marvelous talker on a deep subject. I do not see how even Spencer could unwind a thought more smoothly or orderly, and do it in a cleaner, clearer, crisper English. He astounded Twitcher with his faculty. You know, when it comes down to moral honesty, limpid innocence, and utterly blemishless piety, the apostles were mere policemen to cable so with this in mind you must imagine him at a midnight dinner in boston the other night where we gathered around the board of the somerset club osgood full boyle o'reilly full fairchild responsively loaded and aldrich and myself possessing the floor and properly fortified cable told mrs clemens when he returned here that he seemed to have been entertaining himself with horses and had a dreamy idea that it must have gone to Boston in a cattle car. It was a very large time; he called it an orgy, and no doubt it was viewed from his standpoint. I wish I were in Switzerland, and I wish we could go to Florence, but we have to leave these delights to you. There is no help in it. We are joined in love to you and all the family. Yours as ever mark end of section 24 recording by james k white chulavista